If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. This is episode 119 of the podcast. If you're new to the show, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is your place for trusted health guidance and support. Whether you're looking to improve your health or just seeking ways to stay well, we're here for you. This growing community is on a mission to improve our state of being and experience together on the planet. So this is a, a new thing for the show. It's a recording from a live event in August with Dr. Jason Soule. If you want to learn more about him, uh, you can check out episode 93 of this podcast from 2021, his journey through the prison system and getting his PhD and becoming the head of Minneapolis NAACP. It's a conversation I wanted to include you all in, whether you're well-versed in abolitionist practices or new to this dialogue. Jason's story and what he is building is thought-provoking, at times challenging, and always inspiring. Jason is simply one of the most hardworking, thoughtful, and caring people I've met. It's what drew me to his work and to abolition. For those of you whose only understanding of abolition is Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, the simple dictionary definition of abolition is to formally put an end to a system or institution of harm. And this is where I'm drawn into the work because it's similar to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. And what Jason and I chose to focus on in this talk is the notion of public health. It's also about building a community of trusted support networks, much like I do in integrative health. So this is some real talk, and I should mention for anyone who's been harmed by the system or been incarcerated, then I want to give you a warning that Jason shares some of his toughest moments in his experience, as well as his mistakes, but also his successes. As a criminal justice professor for more than a decade, Jason asks us to look closer at the systems of health and safety that we have here in this country and how they're set up, especially if you're not of European origin, to justify harm and to limit support. He has also been trained and, and engages in other models like restorative justice and transformative justice as ways to put an end to our current methods and to rebuild systems of care and support with better accountability measures. We decided to have this conversation at a Minneapolis Park Center because of the amazing affordable services they provide, like childcare, sports programs, and two free meals a day for any child in need. And a big shout out to everyone at North Commons for helping make this a great night. It's a special night for many reasons. I had the opportunity to meet a lot of Jason's closest friends that I'd heard a lot about, and a lot of people showed up for me as well. And also, Jason was uh, offered a quilt and given this the sacred honor by a Dakota chief he's been working with for many years that allows him to add his voice to decisions of the tribal leaders. I know from talking to Jason afterward that it was quite an emotional moment, and I think he's still processing this honor. And I found myself feeling very vulnerable listening back to this one as I shared things, which Jason knows, that I don't discuss much publicly, like growing up with my mom in government-assisted housing 
something that I think shaped my life in many ways and helped me to develop the kind of empathy I need for my work. To set the scene for this night, Jason hung pictures around the room, which we'll be mentioning here in the talk, uh, of him at different stages in his life, including his arrest mug shots and a picture of him in cap and gown receiving his PhD diploma, as well as quotes from thought leaders in the struggle for equity. We had some amazing food brought in by Soul Bowl, which, if you're in Minneapolis, has two locations, one in the North Loop and the other in Richfield. And we all got to hang out and mingle for about an hour and then sat around in a large circle so we could all see each other. Jason is introduced at the start here by his longtime friend, Siobhan Johnson, who also shares some stories and a very personal piece of her writing. Please enjoy this conversation on Abolition for Public Health. just want to start off by saying I'm Siobhan Johnson, um, Jason's big little sister. I'm his big sister when he needed him. I'm his little sister when I need him. Um, but we've had a beautiful journey together um, through college, um, throughout Jason's uh, incarceration experience, um, and him actually being the first African-American male to receive a downward departure in Washington County based on who he was. Um, and so... He is a miracle. He's a total miracle. And the reality of it is, is that there's so many more Jasons. Um, Jason and I had the privilege of going to college together. We went to undergrad together. And Jason is so disrespectful that he brought my name 60 times in his book and did not tell me and didn't tell me. So I'm like, oh, I don't want people to know me like that, bruh. Um, but his journey, have y'all, have y'all read a book? Have y'all read this book from Prison PhD? Come on. Ain't that a story? Yes. Ain't that a story? And I was just looking at my brother today, um, and he is a living miracle. And in what he's doing, in terms of giving back to the people, unapologetically um, giving folks second chances, unapologetically taking his second chance, and making the most of it. One of the things, I, when I went to grad school, Jason was like, hey, go hard or go home. Shemana, sure. if I hear you been going hard, just come home. For sure, um, for sure. But so, I can't say enough about Jason. Um, and I just remember the night that he got caught up. And I told him to ask to go home. Excuse me, kids. I told him to go home. <laughs> um, but I remember going to him, trying to get to him. And I actually was on the phone with him when he surrendered. Um, and I remember crying out that night, like, God, not this one. He can't be in prison. He's got too much to give. He's got too much to give for our people. He cannot rot in prison. And myself and two of our other friends, Karen Monahan um, and Jose Thurman, um, we journeyed with Jason. And um, they was trying to turn us against each other, like, hey, he did this. I'm like, I'm not telling you nothing <laughs> till I talk to my brother. Like, I ain't got nothing to say to you. That's real. Um, and he was so worth it. I remember the trial was so funny. They was antagonizing the courts because Two buses of freedom school kids showed up. Mm. Free Jason's soul. Free Jason's soul. You know 
Murray was mad at Washington County? That was mad, big man. Man. Jason Hayes was big man. Man. And when they told my brother that the first African-American man in Washington County to receive a downward departure, Jay, you was looking at 98 months? Was it 98? 110 months. 110 months. And I think of all the things that could have been forfeited if he'd have been incarcerated. Hmm. His beautiful family, hmm. graduating from university, hmm. being a professor, so many things we wouldn't have. And so I'm thankful for my brother. Um, and I'm just going to share a poem, and then I'm going to give it over. You know I love you. I love you too, oh, fam. I love his pen. This poem is entitled, Can You See the Beauty of This? It is a poem that I wrote. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm very silly, but I'm also very serious. Um, and I'm not asking you, am I hot? I'm asking you a deeper question. Hmm. Can you see the beauty in me? Can you reach into your soul and avoid your logic and every bit of your rationality? Can you see the struggle I've been through, the test I've been put to, and my incomprehensible desire to be free? Can you see the age of time in my face? My past and shame, disgrace, and when I look into this mirror of fleshy imagery, wonder if you, the world, can or want to look to see the beauty in me. A child of a conqueror, the child of a king, big hurt and tortured with the pain of life's sting. Keeping the faith, knowing that's all I possess, and knowing the ones before me struggle to never settle for less. Hmm. Past, present, hopeful destiny, asking, do you want to look to see the beauty in me? Hmm. All the trials I've seen, former king and black queens, Love me, choose, or hate me, contemplate, result, release these chains of mere instability. See all the beauty rise up, all the good that I be. Mm. No shame, no cry, prosperous describes I, at life and oppression's peak. My eyes full of promise, in all its purity, you have to be blind from your heart not to see the beauty in me. Mm. It not be about black, it not be about white, but it be about me not reaching the tower of life's height. Mm. I aspire to succeed, be it by whatever creed. Glory, freedom, live the life to be free. Can you, will you want to look to see the beauty in me? Can you see the beauty in we? Can you reach into your soul, soul, to see the beauty in we? And so we see the beauty in you, bro. We see it. And we want you. We got you. I know, fam. You're putting the work in I told you not. Ready to do this, Jim? Let's do it. How y'all feeling? We feel good. She be trying to make me cry and shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's why I be fighting that shit. That's time I be like, ah. But um, it has been a journey. Um, and a lot of people in here have been on that journey with me. Y'all gotta know Jeff. Y'all gotta know Belisha. Y'all gotta know Malaysia. Zaday. Y'all need to look around this room, fam. People I rock with, people I love, people I co-struggle with, people I've had journeys with in the past, and now I'm seeing them again, former students, and I'm grateful. If you look around, it wasn't easy. 23 and one, drive you crazy. 23 hours in a cell, no interaction. We definitely weren't eating like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's hard. 
And um, it's like we go through slavery and released into the Jim Crow. But I never lost that faith either, fam. You know, even when they was trying to talk all them numbers, I'm like, I stand and look y'all in the face. I'm Muhammad Ali in this courtroom. Straight up. I'm looking at a bunch of white cops. I was in a 52-minute high-speed chase. Four police departments. This at the height of my activism. I'm out here talking black power for real. I'm with Angela Davis. Come on, man. We were Angela Davis and SNCC, and we freedom school. Black pride out here. The state wanted me, though. I had to be embarrassed. They tore up my house, took my cars. I was scraping the bottom. And it's like the community always repaired me, fam. People lost, people went from by my side, people threw me away. But it was people who said, no, nah, I'm going to fight with them and I'm going to fight for them. Even when I was shackled going in that jail wearing Steve Biko. You know, every day I was representing. It's 2005, y'all. Wasn't nobody wearing Malcolm X out here. I'm talking every day. I'm talking every day. We had on the side of Shakur. Wasn't like that out here. So I'm grateful, 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 because they could have killed me plenty of those nights. And when Siobhan say she heard me surrender, that's when I had ran long as I could. I was on my way to a Jeezy concert, fam. Y'all might not know what Jeezy meant back then, but he had the crown. Jeezy had the crown back in 2005. So when I left my class at MCTC, she said go home. I ain't want to go home, man. Like, come on, man. I was chilling. I was single and everything. When I was 25, 26, I was winning. Full-time job, part-time job, black student union. Come on, man. But I was on my way to a Jeezy concert, and the devil tried to take me, fam. High-speed chase with the troopers, all that. I was about to have a party of my life, and my life flipped upside down. And um, it's a lot of hurt and pain and all of that. So we're here to share some of these stories and talk about why I'm an abolitionist. Jeremy been down by my side. I want him to introduce himself. He's a dope north sider. He grew up around here and all of that. So I'm going to let you ground us a little bit more after Siobhan. And, um, we're going to get to some of those questions. Thank you. And thanks for coming out, everybody. This is, this is like an amazing thing to see these kind of faces together. Some of the conversations I've already had tonight, and we want to invite more of this conversation. We're not going to go too long, but we're also going to be recording a podcast tonight. Um, whatever, we get, whatever we can get out of this, because there's a lot of people who don't understand abolition. And one of the things I want to start with with everybody tonight is just to kind of hold an intention. Um, I, I know we have, um, we have a chief in the house tonight who presented Jason with a quilt. And uh, from some time I spent at an Ojibwe nation, um, I, like to, I like to think about it holding space for all our relations, which means our ancestors, all of our relationships, our relationship to the earth. And keep, keep that in our hearts tonight as we, as we go through these conversations. So Jason and I got introduced through a, a, a friend, somebody who had been working with um, J Jason with Humanize, I believe. Yeah. Um, and I had, I had seen 
read some of Jason's work already, and, and I, was, I was following him, following him through all, everything that was going on. He was doing Facebook Lives after, after George Floyd, walking around the Target parking lot. And then Christine walked into my office with a humanized hoodie on, and I said, you know Jason? <laughs> And so we, 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 started, we just started talking and we, we recorded a podcast last year together. And the reason that I, that I wanted to talk to Jason was because I, I saw, I, I work in an integrative health field. I do a lot of work with trauma. I do hands-on work with people. I work with everybody from newborns to people who are dying. And I just saw something in the way that Jason was working and, and, and the way he was organizing and, and, and for care that I, that I could just see was, was so similar to the way that I thought about, about work, and I wanted to work with him some more, mostly. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the conversation that, that we wanted to present to you guys tonight to, you know, to be involved with is to think about, you know, there's, there's, there's an aspect of what I, 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 I put out a podcast episode right after George Floyd. I was, I was feeling pretty heavy-hearted, I grew up. I grew up on the north side in a in a subsidized housing project with my mom, and you know I, I saw I saw a lot of stuff go down, and I and I saw a lot of ways in which my my skin color gave me privilege. And it was and it was challenging, and I've and I in some ways I've I've always been a little bit of an outsider. And I think a lot of people can understand that feeling. And there was something about the moment that happened after George Floyd that for me. I just felt I just felt like, you know, it, it hit me so hard, and it, and it hit me in the way that I could sort of tell the the people that I've been treating for years and the generational trauma that I see. I, I worked in New York for for a long time, so I worked with a lot of immigrants. I worked with a lot of refugees. I worked with a lot of people who were you know family members of Holocaust survivors, and you start to see the way that impacts generation after generation and the health the health that it starts to impact. Mm. And, and that, that is our public health. That is, our, that is all of our relations. And so that's, that's really where, where I come to this conversation. And, that's the, and I, I don't know how much of Jason's story you guys know, but I, we're, we want to kind of get into a little bit of this story today uh, for, for some kind of background. Um, but, but also, I think you can kind of see the arc of, of what it takes to sort of get through some of this stuff and the kind of community. I mean, we have somebody t tonight who's who's been support for Jason through this whole period of time. So, so one of my one of my thoughts, you know, one of the things I I don't think I've ever asked you this, Jason. But so growing up in in Chicago South Side, right at the right at the height of you know, or, or right at the birth of the war on drugs, really. Um, you know, abolition work is really about doing imagining and and about. Kind of thinking about what is what is what is possible. What is what's beyond the horizon that we're just not envisioning. But what did what did you see as the horizon as as a young person in Chicago? Um. So I always had a lot of pressure as a kid to do stuff. You know what I mean? Like I didn't grow up like other kids. It was early. I had to be called. You know, like just to do things I didn't want to do. Like, I had to protect my mom. I had to really think about how to hold my sister down through a lot of things. Um, you know, I had to bury my father earlier this year, and that was a long journey through his addiction. So all I had was dreams. That's all I used to do. I got an award for daydreaming. Like, like <laughs> I swear to God, like, 
True story, man. Like they gave me a award for that shit. So I always used to be like, this ain't my, this ain't me. Like, man, we had, I mean, you gotta think, man, it was kids. I was in sixth grade. Well, let me get it right. I was in fifth grade when we had one of the twins pass away. These were identical twins and they were in sixth grade. I grew up with them. Loved them to death. These twins were amazing. I saw them from kindergarten all same school and one of the twins died of an asthma attack. Mm. To see the living twin, you gotta have so much like mental fortitude and like gotta think and I'm labeled bad so I don't, I don't have no room to get mad or sad or none of that because I'm under a microscope. So by the time the war on drugs hit, I already knew that I was gonna try and do something. You know, like everybody in my neighborhood thought they could hoop. You know what I mean? I was just, man, come on, my neighborhood. <laughs> you you asked about some stories, I was balling. I was eating them up because I'm like, I hoop. You know what I mean? I'm like, I can play. I understand the game. It was, I was dreaming on the court of like being like, of course, like everybody else, want to be like Jordan and stuff because we actually seeing Michael Jordan. You can actually hear about him playing by the lake. He used to go, him and Scottie Pippen, used to be by the lake front, hooping. Then you hear some people came. That's one thing about Chicago y'all don't hear much about. You can run into Common doing a show out of nowhere, and he got Nas with him. And that's one thing we used to like really dream of, because I saw some stuff where it's like, man, I saw when people go crazy for the White Sox and Cubs, so I knew when the city had things to offer. I saw I could go downtown. My mom worked at the post office downtown Chicago for 28 years. So I saw a lot of downtown. So for me, I never was stuck in. I used to say, no, this ain't my situation. Like, please. I'm getting, I said, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to come back and do what I got to do. And that's what I did. I left there and I still, I'm still connected to the schools I went to. I went to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So when you ask me about 94, 94, I was selling a lot of drugs because it was drugs everywhere. I was in the game. I had leadership in the game. But I was really preparing to play Kevin Garnett. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wasn't, look, when I say I was hooping, I played for Dunbar. This is a team that when we step on the court with you, we trying to eat your face. (laughs) I'm not lying. Like, you asked about Paul Lawrence Dunbar during those years. We wasn't playing when we stepped on that court. It didn't matter if you was, it didn't matter who you was. You got to think, my Dunbar team, they lost to Kevin Garnett for the city by three points. And that's only because I got sent to Waterloo Island. Mm-hmm. If I was on that court with my squad, Kevin Garnett probably wouldn't have played for Minnesota. So let me just be clear. Let me be clear. So when you ask, when you ask about this, hey, you know, how, you know how it is. You better ask somebody. 1994, I was dreaming. But I was still slipping and caught up to my mom. When I was 16, my mom was 35. She's trying to figure out her life, too. My mom was a teen mom. My sister was, you got to think, my mom gave birth at 16. Southside Chicago, 5817 Walcott. It's the trenches. So for my mom to say, we're going to make it, grab some items, we out of here. We got evicted. We went through a lot. By 94, I felt like an adult. By 16, I felt like I was grown. So I was more so like... I got to put money on the table, and it was just, I just needed a different product. If it wasn't drugs, I would have been fine. But were, were you concerned that, that the horizon that you saw with, with friends going to prison already, kids, yeah. kids you knew dying already, 
Yeah. Would, 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 did, did, you, did you still see that you could get beyond that? I, I didn't know, and nobody knew. Nobody knew, fam. Like, I mean, my teachers, they love me, but they like, man, you smart, but you bad, man. Like, I don't know. Man. And I was like, shit, I don't know either. Like, I'm trying to figure it out just like y'all trying to figure it out. I do not know why I'm in it. So I saw past all of that, though. What people didn't see in me and how they were sizing me up and thinking about me, I still wasn't letting that get to me. Even when I was in prison, I'm like, I'm going to be all right, man. Like, everybody, all my guys will tell you, even when we were selling drugs, I always said, I'm not doing this forever. 1994, I had an eighth of a kilo, was putting stuff on a scale. And it, it wasn't because I wanted to be a big drug dealer. I'm trying to eat and get my mama out of here. My sister vulnerable, fam. This South Side Chicago, man. So my, my horizon was, I'm going to figure it out. Like I said, at a young age, I used to tell 12, 13 years old, like, I'm going to figure this out because... Before I started selling drugs, I was the paper boy. I wasn't afraid of hard work, but to be able to, there's some seats up here, Prince. But to be able to like put my family focal as the focal point, it required me to do something else. Nation of Islam wasn't making enough money. They was around, you know, they, they was in my neighborhood. Christians was in my neighborhood telling me to come to church. I had positive stuff around me but at the same time, my self-esteem was messed up because it wasn't nothing in that refrigerator. Yeah. So that my horizon was, I'm going to put something in this refrigerator. I told my sister Toya, you're going to go to prom and you're going to look nice and you're going to have a dress. I had to hustle for that shit. But you think my sister, she got a haircut and everything, man. She went looking beautiful. I did that shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, so... I just was, I always saw beyond it. Yeah. it, but I was swimming in the water at the same time. I had to have a gun on me, I had to have dope, I had to say, hey fam, if they hit me, man, make sure my mom understand this. It was just real like that, so I'll say this, 1994, Troshan, my homeboy in Chicago, we was on the same Dunbar basketball team. He went away for life. Bro just came home about four years ago. And he's still Troshan though. That's what shocked me, he's still him. And I'm like, fam, you know, like, and I saw that progression before he went to prison, us grinding on that court, Sunday practices, him going to his hood, me and my hood. We always trying to survive that stuff. You got to think, I got sent to Waterloo, Iowa. My cousin went to Atterbury, Indiana. Like, my Capone, you know Pone and all. They came right here to North Minneapolis, all in 1993, 94. We, it's like a second migration happened that people don't know about. We had to get out of the city. Before it was like, yeah, we all going to Chicago, man. It's the land, it's in the north. You, you can live. No, man, that war on drugs. I was four years old when that war hit. Yeah. I grew up in it. My uncle went to prison at 12. So I don't know the life that other people have. We had to figure it out. If I call, look, think about this. If I ever, as a, a kid or adult, called the police, they might come and kill me. My last name's Soul. That means something in Chicago. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it always was like, I'm going to try and figure it out. I'm just grateful that I had enough time because, you know, I've been shot up in all of that. So for me to be able to, like, live long enough to show I could be a father, you could see me in so many different respects now. And at 20, if those bullets would have killed me or if them cops would have shot me, any of the, like, you look at these mug shots and shit, y'all. You think these was pleasant moments in my life? These weren't pleasant. I was looking at them like, you're going to have to kill me, man. Like, I don't play with y'all. Like, I know y'all cops and stuff, but 
You push it too far, man. We're going to be in. So I never looked at what was in front of me as a solution. I always said, when I'm in a place where I got a little juice in this neighborhood, we're going to be safer. So 18, 19, 20, you look at my years, even in prison, people will tell you, I've always been the one. Siobhan, you remember nights? Well, it's like people want to fight and do all that crazy stuff. I don't care if it's 30 of y'all. It'll go. So I've always been the one saying, fam, we don't want no smoke. But if we're going to go there, I'm going there. I'm going there, for real. Because I'm like, I'm too, like, I try to be as nice as I can. I love people. But when you do some disrespectful stuff around anybody around me, Jeff, you done seen stuff. People done seen. We done been in some tough situations. And I'm still me. And I say, look, take these keys. Y'all get in that car. I get home. Trust me. Y'all, even in the toughest, I've always seen beyond what's in front of me. So let's take it forward. Yep. What do you, what do you, now, now that you've been, been engaged with abolition work for yeah. Long time. For sure. What do, what, what do you see as the horizon now? Um, I just look at it like this. If we decided to, you know what, say, hey, we're going to commit one hour each week to an abolitionist framework. That might be, um, we want to be able to respond to each other when you're in crisis. We all agree you the first call, you're going to be my second call, Prince, you're going to be my third call, fourth call, fifth call, sixth call. So whenever I'm down and I'm hurt, I already know. I got a few. I don't got to think police or 311 or a stranger. I'm thinking about people I know. I know how they're going to show up. Ain't no question. They're going to show up with the right energy. You good? Okay, I got you, etc. Once, Look, so because I never had 911 as an option, it's natural for me to say, okay, fam, if you hurting, let's figure out what that solution is for you, man. Before you end up doing something you don't want to do and throwing it all away, what you need? Can you identify a need? Once we start identifying needs and not being afraid to say, hey, I'm messed up. I'm messed up. I'm not well. Don't judge me and tell me I'm weak and I should just get, get to it. And No, man. Like If I'm saying, hey, I'm hurting, fam. I think I need um I think I need a meal or something or I'll take some cannabis if you guys <laughs> but, like, but I'm gonna identify I'm gonna identify a need. Yep. If everybody could think like that, you identify a need when you need like when you're ready to reach out, everybody got you and lift you up. We've helped like like she said, it was a lot of <laughs> it was a lot of people who told Shavar she was dumb for supporting me back in two thousand five. It, it was a lot. People was like saying, like, don't rock with him. He not the right. I, I dealt with a lot of stuff out here. If I sat in that, I would never been able to dream about, okay, how do we support, you know, Siobhan, Jeff, what you need, fam? You about to go to London. Hey, I think you know what I'm I can give and pour into things and see us thrive. I'm a part of rep. If y'all know what rep is, it's relationships evolving possibilities. We answering calls. We all abolitionists. We dope as hell together. Um, individually, everybody doing amazing work. We see beyond cops and cages solving our problems. We saying, what is justice? When I got shot, I thought justice was, this dude at least got to get shot in both of his legs for what he did to me. <laughs> Might not have been right. right. 
What you call justice if somebody shoots you? What you want to happen? It's the start of a conversation, though. Yeah, it's the start of a conversation. Like, fam, why you trying to kill me? Like, you like, what? So it's like, that's what I dream. Like, I want you to still live, but I want you to be injured just like I got to walk all over. That was, like, for real. I'm keeping it all the way real. When when I made it to the hospital, because if y'all know the story, some of y'all might know the story in here. I had made peace out here on these streets. I didn't want to be in, in beef with people. I said, hey, look, we can keep doing this every time we're in the club or when we run into each other, but when is it going to stop, fam? Yeah. We had a real conversation when they was... I could have did them dirty, and I talked to them and said, when we see each other, let's keep this peaceful, because you don't want your family and stuff to have to move differently over you trying to fuck with me, because I'm not messing with y'all. Yeah. I could verbalize that and say, I don't want beef, but if you, you cross this line, man, like, it's going to be... So when I got shot and I was at the hospital, you ask any police or nurses, anybody who was in there, nurses, like we talked about <laughs> earlier, nurses, I was, when my people was in my room, I kept saying... Go kill them, motherfuckers. Because that's why I was. Why y'all do that shit to me? My mom trying to drive up here from Chicago. She never been to Minnesota. My sister worried. My friends, I know some of my friends got shot in the arm and end up passing away. So I'm like sitting with security because I don't know if these dudes finna try and come back in, in here and smoke me. Yeah. So you talk about trauma and all of that stuff. If I didn't see past learning how to walk again, past that beef I had with them. I always said, we're going to figure this out and be able to move past it. Some things it's just like I had to let go, too. Like, why well, spend so much time in this tense area when I can dream and pour into stuff and create something different for other people? I had to let a lot of stuff go, and that was hard for me to do because I come from somebody do something to you, you, you get back at them. I come from that, so to relinquish that, you got to think, like, y'all know what happened. Like, we, I was telling the story when I got set up 2005. You know the dude set me up and all that. My friends wanted to kill that dude, and I had to keep saying, don't do that. I'm good. My life is better. Seeing them in the club and stuff, they like, hey, no, it's 25 of us. Let's go ahead and my life good. He know that. You know what I'm saying? People know I've given grace. So I can do that now because it's like whatever somebody done threw at me, trying to set me up, shooting me, you ain't going to stop it. So I've always had to see beyond. When I was in the cage, all of these cages I was in, I was in there exercising, visualizing. Every day, I was on some Malcolm X shit. They trying to play that country shit on the radio. I'm blocking that shit out. But I'm, here, I'm hearing Jay-Z in my head. Like, I'm hearing Jay-Z. I ain't lying. I, you had to look. If you want to buy that cage, Look, fam, I do, this, I do this with people a lot of times. This is why I can see beyond. Just to answer your question, we can move on. I ask people this all the time. How long can you stay in this room with all your meals? You got the internet. You got everything in this room. You got a shower. You got everything you need. How long can you stay in this room before you knock and say, hey, I got to get out of here? How many of y'all feel like y'all can stay in here a week? Who can stay in here a week? Who can stay in here two weeks? Okay, now, now look, now I'm going to ask you this. Now I'm going to ask you this. Let me do this right. Can I take this off here? No, you got to keep that. All right. So let me ask you this now. How long can you stay right here? Right. How long can you stay right here? 
That's what I'm saying. So if in that cage, I saw people get on medication. I saw people get on medication to get better. And all they did was lose who they was. I saw people who was live on the block. I'm talking, we in the party, they getting it. Let's go, let's go. In prison, in prison, they got on that medication. Zombie. What's up, Jay? That ain't even how you talk or move. I know you. So it's like I saw too much and I was like, oh, I could be like that. So my mind kept saying, oh, no, let me go ahead and lock in. Like they want me to try and get caught up in these TV shows. They show, they show you a lot of court shit when you in jail and you in prison. You watch a lot of cops. And I'm like, I never understood. I always had to see beyond that shit. Because it's like people in prison, you know how it be. Like you really be watching cops. Like he going to get away, he get away, get away, get away. Man, I'm like, what the fuck am I watching all this shit for? I had to say, man, look, I don't even want this TV. I don't want to have no TV. I need all books. Feeding my mind. When I call home, I got to, like, feed, tell people to the world, hey, when I come home, I'm not coming to no game. And what's up, Kenna? What's up, fam? Pull up a chair. So it's like, for me, in those moments, I had to see beyond what people gave me. Because when I came home, people thought I only could be, like, a um, janitor. Or they wanted me to work at, like, no disrespect to the janitors, but... That wasn't what I saw for myself. Yeah. So my PO, they not telling me to go to college. My PO telling me, you got to get a job in 60 days or you going back to that cage. So with that, I had to see something else because it's like, they wanted me to work at a meat market. I said, fam, I ain't ate pork since I was 15. I don't be into all of that eating meat lovers and pieces and shit. Just, no disrespect. No disrespect. But since 15, I wasn't never eating like that and stuff. Like, I was like, man, I'm very particular. Like, I don't, I don't do all of that stuff. When you're in Waterloo, Iowa at 16, and you're telling people you don't eat pork, that's a revolutionary act. I know well. That is a... Hey, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My family. Absolutely. Hey, hey, you know Waterloo. Like, but me wearing shirts that said Allah in Waterloo, Iowa with an afro, talking the way I talk, I had to see beyond what they saw in me. I had braids and stuff. Like, I had a tattoo at 15. I had to see beyond what they saw in me or else I would have perished, man. I would have died, like, for sure. So I had to bust through and take on things that people didn't think I could do. I do that every year. I take on something different just to see, like, where I'm at to test myself. So that's been a practice since I was younger where I'm like, yeah, I'm a three-time convicted felon on y'all paper. But in the community, I represent something different. And what, what strikes me when I, when, I, when I listen to your story too, Jason, is like, you, you, you've evolved. And part of, part of your evolution is finding a, a, abolition as a practice. Absolutely. And that's, and that's one thing that I think, I, you know, I don't know how, it's, I'm still learning a lot about, about this, but the, the, the practice of, of trying to reduce harm and build these relationships that you've built for yourself and yeah. having accountability. Yeah. And, and compared to where you were when you were younger, which, which is just a mirror of your culture. I mean, we, our, our, our criminal punishment system, the, the way that we think about, the, the way that you thought you, that you wanted this guy to have both his legs shot, yeah. that's, that, is our, that is our culture in a nutshell. That's our punishment system. That's sure. the, that, uh, we have a very vindictive way of thinking about doing these things. Yeah. And, and even some of the things that you post sometimes, I'm, I'm, I'm a little shocked, I'm a little bit like, can I can I can I sit with that like like R. Kelly? Yeah. Okay. What, what what does our culture want to see with R. Kelly? Yeah. The worst possible thing you could imagine. And and yet yeah. you'll you'll say is this really 
you know, what, yeah. what, what his end should be. Now, now yeah. he did some pretty horrible stuff. Absolutely, he and, did terrible shit. Like, I mean, so even when we think about somebody like R. Kelly, I grew up, you gotta think, R. Kelly's high school is Kenwood. I grew up six blocks from Kenwood. He was the biggest thing in Chicago. Um, he was a Blackstone. So if y'all knew what I gangbanged, he was the same gang. So my connection to him was different at a young age. He was the, come on, he was a celebrity. You think 94, he was making honey love? We all was, he was gone. Backseat up my Jeep and all of that shit. That shit was like crazy music at that time. But when I came home from prison, my friends were still hanging with R. Kelly. You gotta think, my friends knew ballers and stuff in Chicago, like, you know, not to brag, but I wasn't a broke drug dealer, you know what I mean? Like, I, was, like, I mean, I just a broke drug dealer. I wasn't a broke I mean, I just wasn't. So when I'm trying to be around Jeezy and trying to be around people, it's because I had an appetite for that at a young age, but it never made me look at you like you so amazing that you just get away with what you get away with. So when I came home, Everybody watching this tape and all of this stuff, they think it's funny. And like I said, I came home 2002. That's when that shit was hot out here. And everybody watching it, whatever. And my friends was like, man, he already bought her family a house, man. Like, she's not coming to court and shit. And they knew all of this stuff. So if you know me, and I tell these stories because people know who my homeboys is. Like, people know I used to be with Boss Lump. I used to be with some, some real ones. They was friends with people like that. And I used to be like, man, dude, weak, man. I don't know, even know why y'all still support that kind of stuff. Like, I still was standing on my stuff, trying to go to college and trying to change my life. I wanted them to, like, take my side in that. You know what I mean? Like, y'all so enamored with him. I, when I rock with you, I rock with you. Whatever you got going on, I'm in it with you. So I give radical consent often. Sometimes I give radical consent to people who don't deserve it. That's what we got to learn. So it's like as an abolitionist, it's about reducing harm and thinking about how do we hold each other accountable when harm does happen. Because sometimes as friends, we fall out. We're not talking. We upset. We is three months in between us. It's building up. We ain't had no conversation. Sometimes that's the process. Sometimes I'm not ready to talk once you did something to me. I might say, hey, I need about three and a half months. But I'm willing to come back. That's what transformative justice is. It means I love you so much that even when you hurt me, I still can possibly like work through a process to get somewhere with you. I don't know if it's gonna take six weeks, six months, six years, or if we never get there, but I'm willing to try. So that's why I'm an abolitionist. Like even y'all know when I was being held accountable with NAACP, what we do, we said just like this, didn't we? When I was in a hot seat and people wanted to say I was being certain ways and all of that, I had to sit just like this and be held accountable. That's, right. that's, right. that's, what I'm, that's why I'm an abolitionist, because I'm willing to sit in and if somebody in here say I harm them, tell somebody else. Don't let me get away with it. Why should I be able to get away with something? Because I've worked hard and I got a story? No, it don't give me permission to violate somebody else. Right. If I can show other people that and show we ain't in competition, we all can thrive, then I can see a world without cops and cages. And courts. That court system, ain't. <laughs> hey, don't let me forget about that. It's trash too. And this, and this gets into talking about what, what harm is. I think, I think we have, we have a, a narrative that we've learned. We've, we've learned it from how many cop and court shows yeah. 
about about how how something how, how you know what someone needs to go through to be punished, and we yeah. and we know that that punishment doesn't do anything to, to resolve a situation. Usually, the, the victim is is not held in, in the right way in, in that situation. Right. And the per perpetrator is not going to go through a, 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 any sort of reform from that kind of you know right. punishment system. So. Right. When, when I'm when I'm reading about you know abolition from all the things that you've given me, I'm I'm thinking there's got to be other ways of of holding people accountable and and to be able to go through this process. And I, and I think the important thing, and you talk about this a lot, is that there there has to be an endpoint at some point because there has to be some healing in the process. Absolutely. And our and our court system just doesn't allow for for healing to happen. Not at all. That, that's where we're stuck right now. Absolutely. So the criminal justice system says. You harm me, we go through a process where the best lawyer is going to win. So if I come in the courtroom, I got four lawyers. You come in there, you got a public defender. I'm, even if I harmed you, I probably, you know what I mean? That's what we have in place. That's the criminal punishment system. And it's about money. If you bail out, all, all of that stuff is about money. So if it's about money, how could you ever get justice from a system? How could that system ever truly pardon me? Yeah. As corrupt as it is, y'all can't grant me no pardon, really. I'll go through the process just so I can show other people how to get pardoned yeah. and how to get that stuff off their record. But it's like, y'all like the most high? Period. So it's like, how can you sit there and just say, oh, well, based off what I looked at, I heard both of y'all. I just think, of course they say it in a fancier way, but it's like, yeah, okay, I heard both of y'all. You know what? I believe you more. I'm going to do what you do. Oh, what you got? My kids going to go. Yeah, I'm granting you that. You have a good day, good life. You deal with your punishment. I'll see you in my courtroom in four years. Bye. How could that be a system that helps anything? When I went before a judge... First time I got in trouble, I was 19. I was only in Minnesota three months. I got caught with a, with a pistol. The guys down the street from me pulled a gun on me and my cousins. It was me, Penny, and Paul. May Penny rest in peace, for sure. Pulled out a gun. I look like, y'all gonna pull a gun out on us, fam? We ain't even thinking about y'all. We was coming to get a tape out of a VCR. It was the Master P about it, about it tape, so it wasn't just no, it wasn't just no regular tape. Now, let me be clear. I know some of y'all might not know what that is, but this is a man. This was the Master P about it, about it tape, and it got stuck in the VCR. This was a tragic moment. It really was, though. Some of y'all know my cousin Capone. He was freaking out. He needed that about it, about it. Because it was his entertainment wherever we went. He'd be like, y'all seen the about it, about it thing? He'd throw it in. I used to be like, dang, you done seen this a hundred times. So it was a moment of pause when that tape got stuck in there. He said, come on, Jay. Come down here with me. Help me get my thing. I said, come on, man. Let's go do this, whatever. I'm not no handy type person, but I'm just good in those moments where it's like, Hey, you being a little too hard on it. Man, come on, man. He's, uh, I'm good at that. I'm not good at fixing it, but I am good at He know that. Pong knew that, so that's why he asked me out of everybody to come with him. When I went back down there with him, of course, some of my other guys like, come on, man, we coming with y'all too, what y'all doing or whatever. And this guy got threatened by seeing us laughing and playing. He thought, I guess he thought we was coming down there to bother him. He came out with a 357 like, hey, this is our territory. Y'all got to stay down there on that corner. What? You tripping. Okay. 
I went, I grabbed my strap, I came back down, they was all gone. That was the first day. I'm telling y'all a real story. Like, it's like been documented and everything. They ran off and scattered or whatever. The very next day, I saw one of his cousins. And I'm coming to approach him. He runs, leave his, leave his partner with me. I said, look, you see how much of a coward. I said, come on, man. He gonna run, leave you. He don't know what kind of person I am. I could be harming you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I said, when you get down there, tell them to stop fucking around. So whenever you make it to the end of that block, that was the second day. Third day, the guy who pulled the gun was just sitting on a bench, like right in front of me. And I walked up on him. I said, fam, why is you right here? He said, look, I pulled the gun out. Y'all came back with a strap. We even. I said, fam, we ain't did nothing yet. I'm really shocked. I'm really shocked. I was shocked. I was shocked. <laughs> look, I was flabbergasted. I said, we even. I couldn't even process it. I was like, oh, he see. And I was trying to, man, he blew my mind with that. We even, because I pulled the gun. You shot at the door. I'm like, he got, got a point. But I'm like, it's not how this works. Once you unlock it, until we, hey. So I said, just go in the house, fam. I said, because if one of my homeboys see you, it's going to be a different thing. I said, go in the house, man. For real. He went, he took his butt in the house. Then they had a meeting at the end of the block. And if you remember Homicide and all of them back in the day, they had a huge meeting on the corner on St. Albans. 50 dudes. Cars pull up, Chevys, all of that. I'm not tripping, man. I got my pistol on me. I thought they was going to come down and, and try to do something. I wasn't trying to go for them. I wasn't an aggressor. I was standing there with my gun. Police swore me. That's the story. Just turned 19 years old. Still a teenager. That was the beef. I went to jail. It's that mugshot. That was a ponytail. Look, they know how to make you look bad. Let me be clear. Let me be clear. I never looked that bad. I never looked that bad. <laughs> hey, you got to understand the journey, though. They let me fall asleep so look, When I ran, when I started running, I had a ponytail in when I was running. <laughs> By the time they caught me and all that kind of stuff, by the time I made sure they let me fall asleep, they woke me up all hard, take the picture. Just... <laughs> That's what that is. But I, but this the reason, <laughs> this the reason why I knew it wasn't the right thing. I bailed out for five G's that Monday. And I had a basketball game at Sheffer at six o'clock, so I still made it to my ball game and still had to really like say, and hey, y'all know them dudes weak as hell because I know they called the police on me. Why the hell would they sworn me? Like, out of nowhere like that. I wasn't aggressive. I wasn't going for nobody. I was right in front of 735 Central where I was staying. So it's like you vilify me and make it look like I'm just this crook. And then I started believing it. It put me in a, it put me in a bad place, but I'm grateful to come out of it eventually. But it wasn't nobody telling me I could be a... Until I met like Mahmoud and we was hanging with people like that, it wasn't nobody telling me I could be a professor. Mahmoud was the first person calling me Professor Soul, and I was just a freshman. He would say Dr. Soul. I was a freshman. I was 24 years old. Had been to prison a few different times. Pistol shot up all. For him to say Dr. Soul? Ain't nobody calling me that. He wasn't calling none of y'all Dr. Shabana. Let me be. He was calling her Siobhan. He was calling Anthony, Anthony. 
like, hey, he wasn't calling none of them. I didn't hear him calling. I've been a professor for 12 years, too. Quit playing me. Hey, survive my girl, man. But I'm just talking about my food, right? Everybody else saw you. Everybody else. Saw Siobhan. Siobhan published a book when she was 23 years old. I thought that was super amazing. A book of poetry, too. So at 23, she already was on her path. So that's why when she had to meet my street friends, it was a clash of worlds. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to tell a quick story and then we can keep going. How are we doing on time, though, too? I want to make sure. Uh, it's, like 10, it's like 10 to 8. 10 to 8, cool. So we're doing good on time. So... 2005, that's when I said I was on my way to a Jeezy concert. I was with a sophomore in college at Metro State, um, Black Student Union. We would, like I say, Angela Davis, Freedom School, all of that. You know, around a lot of amazing people. Um, but when I went to jail and stuff, I had to have them go get my bail money. My bail was what, 75000 So the bail was 75 Gs. So I don't know enough like professional people who can give me the money. So I had to say, you gotta go to my cousin. He lived behind KFC on Broadway and it might be guns, pitbulls. <laughs> so this was a clash of worlds where I, I ain't had them around the people I grew up with. You know what I mean? I ain't had them around people I, you know what I mean? Like people I knew from the streets and people I had history like that with and people who like knew me from carrying like caskets of our friends who passed away. I never really put those worlds together. I was trying to be a college student and do my college thing. But when I'm in this cell and it's like my sister got some money, my ex-girlfriend had some money, everybody had to pull it together. So <laughs> they had to go see my cousin and um, if you know him, he a serious person, you know what I mean? Like, he about 6'4", he done been stabbed, shot up. I mean, he was 17 years old. He ran the old projects, if you remember Fifth and DuPont, old KMOJ right there. He's Capone. He ran the whole project. So, this my loved one. So, to send her over... Here, here, just here. Pass that. So, we go, and I get my car, and I just got a new car, and I was really particular about it. And Capone gets into the car after we go through all the dogs in the house. And I said, um, do you have an intention to sell that? Because it was drug stuff. I'm like, are you going to sell that? And he's like, who in the hell are y'all squares? Where did you sell from? That's all I would say. Look, for, for Palm, knowing me, you got to think, me and Palm, if y'all know what O Block is, that's like an area in Chicago where if you ain't fresh from where Little Dirk from, Chief Keith, all of that, we was the only people who wasn't black disciples who could be in that project in Chicago. So for us, we go in hoods that ain't ours. We good everywhere we go, etc. And for him, he put money up for me to bail out because he loved me. He was hurting because I wasn't hanging with them like that because I was trying to earn a degree. You got to think my friends who knew me before I was on trying to earn a degree, they feel sad because they not really a part of this, but this life is boring to them. So when they see Shabbat, they like, where did, we, where did he get y'all from? <laughs> like, because his world is mostly, hey, trenches. You know, now he good, though. You know, he came home four years ago, and I made sure my family good. He drive trucks, not 100 grand a year, got all his babies where he need them, a real one. You know, so it's like, for me to be, that's what matters the most. I never 
forgot about where I came. I never let my people, even when I said I can't be with y'all like that, I still always made a way where it's like, you coming home in two months and you need me to get you off. I made sure he had everything. I even bought him a birthday cake. He said, it's the first birthday cake I think I've had in my life, bro. This was a few years ago, man. Some of y'all helped Pong, too. So shout out to everybody in here who was able to do some things and help him come home. We even went to the jail that he was at before he came home. So I never forgot about, you know, my people. And we, you know, we bring Florida home, too. You know, he's been in there 19 years. Hopefully we can bring him home by December. So I never, when I left the cage, when I said I was really going to look back for the people who was in there, I never stopped looking back. So that's why I believe in abolition, because there's people in prison who hold it down. When I was in prison, I tried to say, look, I ain't trying to send up the whole joint over what me and you got going on. I told that story about that white supremacist who yeah. said, nigga, I was about to fucking throw it all away. Yeah. It was lifers who said, it ain't worth it. And I'm like, it is worth it. This boy got to get whooped. He called me. He called me a nigga. He used a joke and said nigga in the joke. And I heard it. And I was like, you got to be, you got to be, you got to be crazy. I could have threw it all away. I was diplomatic enough to say, I ain't going to smash you right here, but whenever, straight up. <laughs> like, that's like, so people got to think, this is why I say I'm an abolitionist. You got to think, what is justice to you? Don't think about no books. Don't think about the system. What's your personal definition of justice? Your personal. What's your personal definition of safety? Let's start there. Because what violence, what's your personal definition of violence? Because you don't got to put your hands on me, but you could cut me so deep with your tongue that it could feel like you fucking assaulted me. So we need to be clear about what we see as violence, what is safety, what is consent. Consent goes far beyond yes or no. Far, far beyond yes or no. When we're ready to go deeper in those conversations, I'm here. So that's why I'm an abolitionist, because it's like, if you've been harmed in any kind of way, we could talk about a path towards justice. Because it happened when you was 8 or 12 or 15, that don't really mean nothing. When I was in a gang, I got held accountable. When I was 15, man, like, I wasn't supposed to put no swine in my hair or none of that stuff, but I was trying to speed the process up. I'm like... I ain't trying to struggle with these little braids. So, so I put some perm in my hair, and my gang violated me for that. I lied. I was like, no, it's a just for me. It ain't no real perm. It's a just for me. Y'all don't know what just for me is. But I'm like, it's a just for me. I was lying. They came to my house and looked in my trash can to see if I was lying. So accountability for me, where I'm from, is very serious. So it's like when people saying, no, but this person, if we don't got no police, we can't get justice. It's like, no, I always can call four or five people and say, no, let's hold court about this. Okay. I'm feeling a way about this. I need other people around. You got to think for us to end our beef when we were shooting at each other. You got to think after I got shot, the people who shot me got all shot up wheelchairs. They, it was violence. It was a lot of violence back and forth. My cousin Capone got shot. We had the same doctor heal us up. So I get shot. My doctor... Then he gets shot, called me. I come to the hospital. I see my doctor sitting with him. And he like, y'all and some stuff. Like he was looking at us like, 
I'm like, yeah, this is my family member. We got through a lot of tough stuff together. A lot of people don't know this, and I hope y'all can keep this here, but um, when Paul was 20, I was 18, his two-year-old daughter got ran over on her second birthday. 18-wheeler. The most dramatic thing you can really think of. So when people look at us as gang members and was putting us on lists, you don't know what we had to go through to get through that, to keep him being, baby was two, dead. People don't want to hear those stories. Before like Philando, wasn't nobody hearing these stories about police choking me and all that. Wasn't nobody listening. So it's like for me, I never saw them as a safety anything. I never had that privilege, never. So when people talk about why you're an abolitionist, it's because I never had that number you got to call. That's why I'm an abolitionist. My sister calling me first. She calling my younger sibling next. Then she got her numbers. I want everybody to have numbers. That's what I'm trying to build when I'm talking about abolition. We can take care of each other. I trust, I mean, I trust like, I trust about 98% of y'all. Some of y'all don't know that well. I'm gonna keep it real. Some of y'all, I know I ain't built relationships that well, but 98% of y'all in here, I trust. I love all y'all, but I, don't, I, don't, I just ain't built with y'all. But I would feel comfortable if y'all exchanged numbers with people and said, hey, we don't know each other, but when I'm feeling like I need somebody to support me on a business decision, I could say, man, Siobhan be grinding. She a professor. She running Pimento Relief Services right now. She connected with Kwanzaa, the place that officiated my wedding and did. I already know what you're getting when you call a Siobhan. When you call a Jeff, Jeff gonna make time. Let's sit down and eat. Zaday, the homie. You know, it's like you kicking with Zaday, man. You gonna feel better. She be talking that shit. <laughs> like, like, kicking it, all of that. I know people's skill set in here. If we all thought about our pods, you look at how Rep is. Rep got a bunch of pods. Well, we tap in with each other. You good? You need anything? Can I be a service? Well, we have servant leadership. It's interesting. This is, this is where we overlap in the way that we think about, about things. I, For sure. I work in an integrative health field, and I happen to work between mental health, pediatrics, mm. orthopedics, trauma, pain management, all these different things. And over, over the 25 years, I've basically just I've created my pods. You know, I've I've figured out who I need to get this person to go see when mm. when there's when there's a problem and 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 my and my people, you know, in my pod know know when to send them to me. That's how my that's how my business works. Mm. And mm. and and the and the kind of care that 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 happens in that situation. I mean, so many people just don't make it in the system eventually or are not getting the kind of care that they want. And they end up, you know, in my office or one of my colleagues' offices. And I, yeah. I have, I have my own, you know, private practice, but we all do for the most part. For and sure. there's a few people that, that work in systems that we really trust, but it's hard. It's harder mm. once you get once you get into the system. For sure. And it's not that much different than than what we deal with with our criminal punishment system. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, we got enough of what we need to really save ourselves. We do. We always looking to build further. We need a thousand people. You need two thousand. You need this. You need. We already have it. So when I'm talking about abolition, I know I can lean on people and say I know they skill set. When Jeff became NAACP, Jeff didn't have a lot of like organizing background. Jeff just cared about people. Good heart. 
wanted to be in somewhere with people and be social. That was that. That was that was Jeff. But we had such a grounding when we was building the NAACP, when we was like really trying to figure out how do we get through this, man? Like how do we make decisions? How do we think about our mental health? How do we deal with conflict when it happens? But you see a lot of amazing leaders from just our time together. When we was co-struggling, you remember Marilyn? Yes, yes, yes. Man, like the what we built, and when I look around now, when George Floyd got killed, I saw all of the people I had co-struggled with step up. That's an amazing feeling to be like, shoot, I don't gotta put a lot of this on my back no more. I can lean on the people who. So if I can get people to meet each other a little bit better, and that's why we're gonna spend the last 30 minutes, y'all just gonna talk, vibe with people, eat some food, we're gonna let the music play, grab something to go if you want something to go, and we're gonna leave like that because this one of many, but um, our health really matters, man. And I realize that more, you know, now because some of y'all know that just the battles I fought with my own father. And um, to be at peace and put him in the ground and not be, I grieved him while he was alive. And that allowed me to be able to not have a process like my siblings had after he passed. So when I think about health, I'm thinking about that generation. I don't want to pass this stuff on to my siblings and my kids, and I don't want that to keep on going. Yeah. So I'm vulnerable enough to say, I ain't trying to have all, like that, all of this slowed my, you got to think, all of these mugshots, all of that lowered my life expectancy. Mm -hmm. I know that. So if I'm trying to have more life, I can't be out here beefing with people and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got to save my energy for the stuff I'm building. Loving people is like what I'm into. It's like I want everybody to win. That's one thing about me that allows my health to be what it is. I celebrate everybody. I support. I stand behind. I vibe. I want to know how to figure it out with you, etc. If we all adopt that, abolition is closer than we really think. So I don't got to be public and say, defund the police. I don't got to do none of that out there. All I got to do is keep. <laughs> That's all I got to do. I don't got to be in none of that wild stuff. All I got to do, hey, I love you. I ain't seen you. Let's go eat. Let's talk. We want to do a training. Oh, we want to put out some new hoodies. Are oh, you thinking about that project? It's a documentary. I spend most of my time in creative spaces building our collective survival. That's improving my health. And I, let's, let's finish with this quote from Mariam Kaba then. Right on that note, everything that is worthwhile it's done with other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if you know Humanize My Hoodie, if you know about 2043 Jeff Project, if you know about Holistic Holes a Day, if you know about DCFC, like serving undocumented immigrant folks, uh, if you know about Kara Katana, the work they doing, DEI work, all of that, Anthony Williams, we go back to Freedom School. I collab more than anybody else I know. The Soul Bowl collaboration, like, I rock with you on your push, fellas, anything you want. I collab more than, I collab more than anybody else. And I see a lot of beautiful collaborations happening, but I'm always down to say, let's figure out what it is, let's build it, let's think it through. Let's put a time limit on some stuff too. With REP, we made a 10-year commitment to loving community members through harm. 
So you call us Friday and Saturday night, we got you. 7 to 10, 7 to 12 p.m. Friday and Saturday, we got you. We're going to love you to your next step. It takes a lot to build that and cultivate that and be ready and a dispatch, be smooth and respond. Most of my work is in collaboration. So I don't really do a lot of solo work. I can, like I'm grinding, like I'm writing some shit. Like when I put out, hey, when I drop my next one, <laughs> like that's all I got to say. Like when the next book come, it's going to be pretty serious. So I got my stuff that I focus on where it's just me locked in. I might have my James Baldwin candle going. Might have my prison lamp that I still got going. And I go into my zone and I work on stuff independently. But for the most part, I love rocking with people and supporting people. I love supporting you when you did your U of M event. I like, yeah, that was dope. Bernie always dope. Everybody here, man, I didn't work with. It ain't like I just, when I can say I know somebody, that's a little different than just, hey, I know, hey, I know them. It's like, no, I really know people. I want us to get to know each other. That's always my goal. So it's like the best things are done in collab. So if I got to work on something just to spend time with you, <laughs> like that's what we doing. Like if it's like I ain't spend no time with a day, fuck that. We finna have to work on a project. Yeah. I'm going to have to think of a project <laughs> to where we, me and, me and Jeff went to New York together for New York Fashion Week. We drove, I picked him up in Chicago, drove six hours, picked him up. We drove 12 hours together to New York Fashion Week. We kicked it four days. He became a photographer right before our eyes. He didn't even know how to work a camera. He played with it the whole 12 hours, figuring it out, taking shots of me, interviewing me in the car. By the time we got to New York Fashion Week, he laying all on the floor. I'm like, who the heck is him? Who was he? But that's what we do. That's the We collabed on that, man. For him to be a large part of that book, the Humanize My Hoodie book, for him to be downtown figuring it out, working with Cooper, another amazing artist from Iowa, he came home and he was able to like, you did the day photography. So it's like, that's the beauty of the work. It reverberates and it's in love. So it's like, and Gerard from Soul Bowl, so the people who, you know, put together Soul Bowl, created it, they even flew out to New York Fashion Week with us in 2019. So we got sacred things that we've done that's like, I don't know how to do those things alone. I could, I could figure it out, but I love doing that type of stuff with other people. Zaday flew out too. Anybody else who flew to New York Fashion Week with us? Shit, cause we went, we was, we was strong out there in New York. Like we ran the place, man. Brooklyn Bridge, we threw an art exhibition there. Like we had a good time, man. Eternally grateful for that. But yeah, Miriam Kaba is right. And uh, just so y'all know, September 14th, myself and Signe Haraday, we're going to be on the um, panel with Miriam Cobble herself. So I'm grateful to deal with her because she's like the OG of this shit to me. Definitely. Agreed. Thank you all. Appreciate y'all. Love y'all, man. Like, meet somebody that's in here. We just going to play music and chill out. If y'all got questions for me, I'm around. I'm not rushing out of here. Like I say, take something to go grab some water. But... Get to meet some of these dope people in this room. Appreciate y'all coming out. You gotta go. Dr. Jason Soul, folks. Jason and I plan to keep this conversation going 
as we both continue to build networks of support. We've got a few more live events in the works and are planning one for the New York City area this fall. I'll confirm a date with you when I know more. If you want to learn more about REP, R-E-P, the community training and call center Jason co-founded here in the Twin Cities and mentions in this conversation, check out rep4mn.org. That's R-E-P-F-O-R-M-N.org. It may be something that you'd like to become more connected with, or if you're an organizer and would like to put abolitionist principles into practice in your own city, it's a great model for building safety into your community without the need for policing. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can reach out to me anytime through the contact page of our website, highway2.health. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.